All right. Friday nights in the Rayburn household, you'll find us doing normally one thing. We'll enjoy a good meal, hopefully some pizza of some sort. And then after the kids go to bed, it is time for me and Emily to watch a movie. It is movie night on Friday nights at the Rayburn house. And there was a question that came this past week with some friends. What is some of the most rewatchable movies? And whenever I was thinking about this message today, there was two movies that came to my mind. And so here, I need to have some connection here today. Is there any Mighty Duck fans in the house? Yes, there are a few. Oh, man, because it says in this, in this incredible line, it's the D2. I didn't really even know, you know, Mighty Ducks 1, 2, and 3, but it's the D2 movie where he makes this statement at the end. It was, we are ducks, and ducks fly together. So close. That's good. We are ducks, and ducks fly together. There's another movie that is so odd that's on the same line, but it's called Miracle. Is there any Miracle fans? Okay, a front row, yeah. Miracle. And there is a line in there that continues to happen again. Again. If you know the context, you'll understand the reference. But at the very end of the movie, as the USA wins and beats the Russians for the first time, there's this famous line, Do you believe in miracles? That's right. That's right. Two movies put on your watch list to see. But they carry a constant theme that you will find, which then a whole lot of movies, not just them, that we love. A group of individuals who, through their differences, who, through their unique abilities, through even their unique personalities, must rally together, must come together in order to do the impossible. And if you begin to think about this, over the course of almost every single movie, it has the same theme. Even imagine a love story. Here is this Prince Charming and this woman that must then come together in order to conquer something incredibly special. And then all throughout that, they just fall in love. It is beautiful. But we love it. We love it. There is something within us that loves to see individuals unite together as a team for a common purpose, for a common plan, for a common mission, and to do the impossible. We are in week seven of our unity or of our community series. And the thing that we are going to be talking about today is unity. If we look up here at the definition, a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. And so today we're going to be bringing to life this idea, this call for us as a church and as individuals and even as marriages, even in families, to be unified. This would be the closest day that I've ever came to having a marriage sermon. So buckle up with all the marriages. If you're even in relationships or have friendships, this would also be able to come into play. Because here's what we're going to find. Is that unity of the church also begins at home. Unity at church also begins within your relationships and your friendships. And so what we're going to be talking today is this idea of unity. Now, unity in itself, I began to have some fun this past week with that chat GTP, whatever, I think I said it wrong. It's the AI. And so I just began to ask the question, does our culture value unity? This would be a common thought. You would maybe say yes, but deep within us, what we actually begin to find is that our culture continues to raise up the individual. 
And oftentimes what becomes more important is the individual versus the team. If you were to imagine this, I had a short stint in my life where I coached varsity girls basketball. That was a wild time, a fun time, but a wild time. And there was nothing more that would ruin a team than one individual that cared more about themselves than the team. We find this within marriages. If one individual is elevated over the other, we find there's disunity. We can continue on and on. But there is some reasons why unity is so challenging. Each and every single one of us oftentimes have a personal agenda. We have different ambitions. We have a difference in backgrounds and upbringings. We have this really hard time just being open in our communication. We also see this individuality and personal growth that each of us fight for. There's conflict in goals and priorities. And we see that those things can begin to break down the sense of unity within the home, within the church, within our culture. But we see that that is not at all what Jesus intended. In the life of Jesus, we actually see him praying for unity. And just to put even more to the foreshadow, we know how important unity is. There is a couple of quotes here I want to share with you. Where there is unity, there is victory. J.K. Rowland, she says this, We are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. And then lastly, we all can know this, united we stand, divided we fall. Jesus, seeing unity as one of the greatest priorities for the church. Jesus, seeing unity as one of the greatest priorities for your family. So important is unity that in Christ's final hours, I want to bring this to life. We're going to be going to John chapter 17. This is literally after they had had the Last Supper and was about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus literally lifts up this prayer. And what does he finish his prayer with? He prays for unity. He prays for unity. And why? Because he knows, he knows the importance of putting aside differences and focusing on what unites us, not what divides us. Jesus saw the danger of different, different trials and strifes and contentions in the church. He knew that we would each be prone to passions and ambitions that would maybe elevate ourselves over the common good. That we would maybe even have a love of sect or party for zeal of the church, over the zeal for the church. And he knew that this would divide the followers and would corrupt the mission. And so he prays for unity. When we look at the context of our culture in the church, this quote came from Paul Bilheimer. He said, The continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has carried more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. And that same would be true for your friendships. The same would be true for the marriages that we see in our culture. And so, as we look at this text today and another text with it, here is my hope. Here is the big idea. Unity isn't created. It's protected. Unity isn't created. It is protected. And let's look at that first point. Unity isn't created. I'm going to make my point. Let's go to John chapter 17. We're going to be in verse 20, beginning in verse 20, and we're going to actually look at Jesus's final prayer. Beginning in verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples in this piece, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Pause. 
This is one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture because in this moment, when Jesus is literally in the last hours of his life, who is he thinking about? You. You. That through the work of the disciples, he knew that one day that the message would continue to be shared, the message would continue to be proclaimed to where you would receive it. And he, you are who he is praying for right now. That those who would believe because the work, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So whenever we see this concept of unity, here's where we begin to find is that Jesus prays for unity for the church. And he prays it in such a way as if he isn't, unity is not going to be created among us, but he is establishing that unity has been already created. It is not our role or job to create unity because unity has already been. And where has unity already been between the Father and the Son? They establish, first and foremost, the unity of which we then model. And how does this unity begin? It begins first in relationship. This I in you and you in me, this is an incredible, incredible closeness. This is this incredible trust, love, honor, and respect for one another. It's an incredible unity between the Father and the Son. This is the example that we are given. And their unity goes beyond just relationship, and it goes into purpose. Their unity is in relationship, but their unity is in purpose. Think about this. If you notice that, that Jesus did not pursue different interests, interests than the Father. He did not. He did not counteract his purposes. He didn't form separate parties against God but seeking the same ends by the same means. Always in the creation, in the preservation, and in the redemption of the world, the Father and the Son have sought the same object. And that is the salvation and redemption of the world. And this is the foundation of which the unity begins between them as the perfect example. But then their, all, their unity also goes beyond purpose and into incredible, incredible Hope that the world may believe. That the world may believe. This is one of the most profound truths. How does the world come to know who God is? How does the world come to know who Jesus is? It is defined here by their unity. That the world may know who God is by our oneness, by our closeness. If we continue to look at this in John 13, 34 through 35, he says, see how the Christians love one another. This is what the prospects would see about the church. See how they love one another. See how they are laying down their lives for one another. See how they are caring for one another. And it, this was what was so different. In our culture, there's animosity. There's fighting. And to see a group of individuals, despite their differences, despite their uniqueness, being unified together, there has to be only one place of which that could stand, or one place of which that could come. That's from above. 
look at the, the aspects of our culture to see unity continue to grow is not at all what we see. John 13, 34 through 35, it has this incredible hope that the believers, that Christians, that the church, that families not be known by wealth, education, fame, not by aspire for earthly honor, not to adopt a particular dress or badge, but that they were to be distinguished by tender and constant attachment to each other, by a tender and constant affection. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that the man may lay down his life for his friends. This is so unique within our culture. So unique. And Jesus, seeing this, he says, this is the unity that we're asking you to walk in. That there would be this closeness, this relationship that me and the Father have that you are also adopted into. That we would have a unified purpose together and a unified hope that through our work, that through our love, others may come to know him. And so if this unity has been established, then what is our role? Well, unity isn't created. It's already created, but it is our role to protect it. And so today I want to share with you a couple of ways. How do we protect unity? How do we protect unity? See, Christ always gives the church the gift of unity, but the church must always pray and work to maintain, reinforce, and perfect the unity that Christ wills. I can put this in your marriage. Christ always gives his families, his marriages, the gift of unity, but the marriage must always pray and work to maintain, reinforce, perfect the unity that Christ wills. Look at the relationships between common believers, between brothers and sisters. It is the same thing. It is not created, but it must be protected. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the key. How do you protect unity? How do we do this? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we look there at verse 1, we get to see our first clue. How do we protect unity? Well, the first step is we must pursue unity. We must pursue unity. To walk in the manner worthy of our calling, if we go back to John 17, the calling is oneness. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to be one with God and one with one another. And in order for us to do this, we must pursue it. We must pursue it. We must put it on the forefront of our mind. It must be something that we think about. And this word calling is so important. It's, it's the same word used as, call, as Jesus called his disciples. As he calls his own sheep by name, to call out and to call from. Unity then being defined in mission, purpose, and identity of how you are pursuing it and going about it. And based on these incredible truths of the one God and one salvation. This is the first one. We pursue this unity as a church. We put it at the front of our mind. It's something that we fight for. But the mind becomes the second place that we must look. If we continue to look, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, in verse 2, with what? 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, let's just be really, really honest. Maybe one of those is easy for you, but to have all four of those is probably going to be fairly difficult, if we're all honest. This is an incredibly high standard. And we will probably go directly to our actions, but here's what I'm going to say is that it actually begins in your mind. And so shift number two, or the step number two is to actually shift your mindset. You see, humility is a mindset. Humility, gentleness is a mindset. Patience is a mindset that continues to be shown through our actions. But it must first begin with our mind. And so how do you begin to shift your mindset? How do you do this? A humility of the mind. And what does this mean? This is going to be profound and very difficult for everybody, including me. It is a deep sense of one's littleness. Having a humble opinion of yourself. Or Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. That is for each and every one of us. Culture says to elevate the individual. Culture says to elevate yourself. But we see in Romans 12, 3, that there's this call to voluntarily humble yourself. These are not virtues of our culture. Pride would be one. But we see here there's this incredible willingness to submit to others. Why is humility of mind so difficult? Why is this part so difficult? And I'm going to pick on the church, and I'm going to pick on those outside the church, those who call themselves believers and those who don't. Why? Because it's the same. There's this word, it's called self-justification. This is one of our biggest problems. Self-justification. Why is, why is humility of mind so difficult? Is because of self-justification. Let me define it for you. It finds itself only in comparing himself with others, in condemning and judging others. Now let's look at this. If this is rooted in pride, then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he gives us the key. He says, If my sinfulness appears to be in any way smaller or less detestable in the comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. And so whenever you see this self-justification, it begins whenever you compare the actions of others with your own. And you may say, well, at least I don't do that. Or at least, you know, at least I I do this. They don't do that. And so you begin to self-justify your salvation and your works based on how you compare yourself to others. Now, This gets extremely, extremely difficult. If we look at a husband and wife, listen, a husband and wife, me and Emily have been married eight years. A husband and wife can find enough in each other to embitter life. If they choose to magnify imperfections and to become irritated at trifles, and there is no friendship at all in this, we can magnify the imperfections of others. We can magnify the imperfections of our wife. But self-justification, it is rooted in this pride. And so what do we do? What's he call us to? Calls us to humility of mind, a humility, a gentleness, a patience, a meekness, and forbearance. Husbands, in the room, I'm going to start with you. And we're going to do the same thing. Husbands, go ahead and identify yourself. But then also, if you're sitting close to a really good friend, then go ahead and get ready as well. 
Well, husbands, you're number one. This is going to be the greatest, the greatest thing I've ever given you as like a gift for you and your family. I promise you. Husbands, look at your wife and say these words to her right now. I don't deserve you. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Emily, I do not deserve you. Say it. And if you can say those words, if you can say those words to your spouse, then it elevates her and it puts you in the right perspective. Now, ladies, look at your husband and say, that's right. (laughs) Here's what pride says, though. Here's what pride says. You see, humility says, I don't deserve you. Pride says you're lucky to have me. Yeah. And if you think about that clearly, right? If you think about the mindset, if you constantly view your wife in the way of which you're you're lucky to have me, then it does not bring her honor. It's the same thing with the church. If you could say, I don't deserve the church, versus the church is lucky to have me, then we're already setting ourselves up for disunity. Gentlemen, I'm going to continue on. I'm telling you, this is going to be such a blessing. It's going to be a great (laughs) evening for you all after this. Gentleness says, thank you. Husbands, look at your wife and just say, thank you. Yeah, this is still, once again, participatory. I'm helping. Emily, thank you. Thank you. Pride says, why can't you do more? Patience says it's okay. Pride screams at the fault of others. Meekness gives honor to another. Pride takes the honor for oneself. Forbearance stays and withstands. Pride tells you to leave and go. And so husbands, when you look at your wife, When you look at your wife, what do you see? When you talk to your wife, how do you talk to her? And whenever we see this, it's a beautiful connection, is that if you can see yourself in the way in which Paul saw himself, that I am the worst of sinners, and it is by God's grace that I found you, honey. It is by God's grace that we are even married. And I'm thankful for you every single day. Yes, you have just a couple of faults. I've got thousands of faults. And he, we made a covenant and a commitment that even through all of my screw-ups, not yours, there's just a few, that we will stick together. You tell me a husband that does that, And I promise you will find a marriage that thrives. And if you look at what the calling is for our husbands to lay down our lives for our wife in the same way that Christ laid down his life for the church. Now, this is the beautiful thing. We use the analogy of the marriage because it's the same way in the church. It's the same way in the church. If we can continue in this attitude of humility, if we can continue to have patience with one another, if we can have gentleness with one another, and most importantly, if we can bear one another, then God will be so proud of us. And here's what's incredible. Not only will he be proud, but he will say, look at how the mission thrives because they are one. 
Now, I just kind of glanced over the bearing with one another. Marriage is hard. It's just hard sometimes. And long suffering, <laughs> it's okay, yeah. Yes, it is sometimes, right? Amen. Amen. And here's why. We are different. We are different. We are not the same. We all have like these different quirks. And, uh, you know, I struggle shutting cabinet doors. I don't know why. I don't know why, but it happens. We all have our quirks. We all have our differences. And here's what we see. There's this, there's this line, we do not go far with another fellow traveler on the journey of life before we find the bearing of their faults, the peculiarities, and the personality. We find that each individual has its own temperament, peculiarities, taste, habits, and disposition. They have their own plans, their own purpose, and way in time of doing things. Anybody's spouse just always late? We're just always late. You know, we're together in that. Yes, unity and just being late. I think that's okay. Different speech. Naturally irritable. And that may differ, that, that may person, that they may differ much from you. And so whenever you look at the church, the church, as we're going to continue to explore next week, is that we are made of a lot of unique individuals with unique personalities, with all sorts of peculiarities, all sorts of different tastes, I mean, all sorts of different just, just attitudes. And that's okay. That's okay. We all may have different ways of doing things. We all may have different ways of just living our lives. But there's a unity that must define us, and that is who Jesus is and what he has done. You know, me and my wife, there's one thing. I share with you the, the where does the cookie sheets go? Man, that's, we've solved that problem, kind of. Here's another, here's the second one. How do you load a dishwasher? It's going to start so much arguments right now, I know. Some of you husbands don't even know where the dishwasher is, right, ladies? Yeah, yeah. But then if you're like me, the dishwasher is basically the sink. You know what I'm talking about? Because uh, you just fill the sink, and then you fill the dishwasher. That's the correct way, am I right? Is anybody in there just the sink fillers? Come on, participate here. Yeah, there's a couple of us. But then I think there's a more proper way. Evidently, you can fill it as you go. That's a new concept and a new idea, right? But you have different ways of doing things in your home, in your life. But here's what we hope. We're still going to wash the dishes, right? Even though there may be different ways of doing it, we all have the same goal. We all have the same purpose. And so even though we may be unique, even though some of you may be very, very peculiar, that we all are on the same journey with the same purpose and the same mission. And this is our incredible hope, and this is our incredible call. And so here's our last point. How do you protect unity? This part is so important, is that we never give up. In verse 3, in verse 3, he makes this statement that I think connects with each and every single one of us. There is an eagerness, an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so will we ever attain complete unity? Absolutely not. We will always have struggles. Your marriage will always have struggles. Your relationships will always have struggles. 
But he's saying in these lines that, but if you can embody yourself with this mindset, if you can allow your life to be lived in this such way, and then together we pursue, we do not give up, we fight for the unity until the Lord calls us home, that there will be an incredible work done in our own lives, in the lives of others. And so we never give up. We never give up. Daily, we seek the virtues of Christ, the Christian temper, the meek forbearance, the spirit of forgiveness in the husband and wife, the father, the mother, the brother, the sister, and the friend and the neighbor. That good is ultimately to be done. See, in unity, the church becomes the place in which the mission of Christ itself continues to lead the world out of man's alienation from God and out of yourself and out of sin so that it may return to God. Ephesians 4, 4 through 7, he finishes this one. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's great gift. And we can read those lines and it's like all the differences go away. All the struggles go away. We begin to see the incredible hope. We begin to see the incredible grace that Christ has given us. And today, our hope is that you would experience the unity that we have. That, yes, I'm still continually fighting for unity in my marriage. I'm still fighting for unity within the church. But here's the unity that I have. I have the unity with the Father. I have the unity with the Son because of what He has done for me. And we want to encourage you to take that same step that so many of us have taken today. With this unity comes peace. With this unity comes forgiveness. With this unity comes redemption. With this unity comes incredible freedom. And so here's my challenge for you today, that if you have not yet Experience this unity with the Father. Here's what I challenge you to do, and it's so incredible, is that this unity with the Father comes from confession. It comes from repentance. And we see that as we just continue to proclaim, it's our sin that separates us from God. But but Jesus came to die for your and my sins. And so how do you receive it? This is so profound. With humility. You say to Jesus, Jesus, I don't deserve you. With gentleness, you say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. With patience, you say, Jesus, I trust you. With meekness, saying, Jesus, I submit to you and your will. And the last one with forbearance, saying, help me follow you, Jesus, all the days of my life that I may bear what may come, that I may fight what the enemy tries to use against me, but that at the end of my days that I may say, well, well, that he may say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So what does it look like to receive Jesus? What does it look like to step into that unity? Just those things that we just said. And today you can do just that. Would you bow your heads?
with me this morning. Today we are praying that God would do a work in our hearts and that God would do a work in our minds. We see that there is disunity all around us. We see that the individual takes precedent over the team, over the community, over the family. And today, in the name of Jesus, we rebuke that. Lord, we are convicted today of our selfishness. We are convicted today of our pride. And Lord, today I pray that as a family, as a church, God, that we would walk in a man worthy of our calling. And that way we would walk in humility. We would walk in gentleness. We would walk in patience. And that we would bear with one another. And Lord, that we would not fight till the day is done to continue to keep this unity within us. And Lord, we know that through this unity we will find peace. Lord, that we will find purpose, that we will find hope. But we also know that through this unity, your word proclaims that others will come to know you. And today we pray that you would just show yourself to those who have not yet known you, who have not yet met you, God. And Lord, that you would just pour out your love, your mercy, and your grace upon them. And may they step into a relationship with you with humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you today. And we are thankful today, Lord, for the salvation that you have brought us. And Lord, today we pray that we would be one, just as you and the Father. Lord, continue to be with our families, be with our marriages. Lord, may our husbands in this room, may our husbands in this room walk this out, live this out today, tomorrow, the next day, the next week. And Lord, when they screw up, Lord, may you prick their heart and may they ask for forgiveness. May we, as husbands of men in this room, just lead our homes in this way. May it be who we are. Lord, so we may find unity and oneness within our homes, within our church, within our community. In Jesus' sweet name we pray. Amen.